This morning, as we're, we're getting back into the book of Ruth, and I would encourage you to please turn there. Ruth is in the Old Testament towards the beginning. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 222. What we're going to find in our passage this morning is the work of God in a heart, the heart of Ruth. So that by the end of this passage, Ruth will make a statement that is so unexpected and so emphatic that it almost takes your breath away. She says the familiar words that you have maybe recited, they're even sometimes used in weddings. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. That's the declaration that Ruth will make. And I believe as we work through this passage, we're going to see that that is not only because of a work of God in her heart, but it's because of the faithful investment in ministry of a faithful woman named Naomi. Ruth will experience a heart of faith because of the work of God, but also because of faithful investment of her mother-in-law, Naomi. And high schoolers and those of you who are beyond high school and college who have benefited from the ministry of Kate Bartley and so many faithful people in this room, I want you to remember that God uses faithful service in order to accomplish his work in hearts. Don't forget the significance of those deposits that happen week after week after week through your faithful contributions, your love for the word of God, and your investment in those who are growing up and learning what believing in God is all about. Continue your investment. We turn our attention now to Ruth chapter one. We're in verse six. This is the second in our series in the book of Ruth. Let me read this verse for us and then we'll jump into our study. It says, then she arose, speaking of Naomi, with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Here she is in the middle of the field, and the abruptness of what is taking place here calls attention to the suddenness of this good news. Naomi hears good news from Israel. Now, we don't know the conditions of that good news. We don't know the, the person who may have spread that good news. And, and, and really, that is immaterial. It doesn't matter because the narrator wants to draw our attention to the, the good news that's at, that's at hand. And that that good news is what prompts Naomi to make a decision. But before we get to the decision, I, I want us to understand the dilemma that, that Naomi is facing. The dilemma that Naomi is facing this word for, for God has visited his people, it means to intervene on behalf of them, to come to the aid of them. It speaks of the favor of God on his people. And, and what we come to, to notice is that even though life has been very hard for the people living in Israel, because if you remember from our study a couple of weeks ago, the condition of the hearts of those people from Judges chapter 21, verse 25, the last verse in the book of Judges that kind of leaps then into this book of Ruth helps us understand there's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The spiritual condition of the people in Israel deserved judgment, deserved condemnation. 
But here we have a glimmer of hope. We have front and center the grace of God that is showing up for, notice it says, his people. God has not forgotten his people. God has not turned a blind eye. God has not rejected them because of their sin against him. God has used hard things, and we said this a couple of weeks ago, God always uses hard things not to destroy, but God uses hard things to lead us back so that we return. He leads us to a place of recognizing how futile our sinning is so he can draw us back into relationship with him. And God is doing that for his people. The narrator here in Ruth doesn't draw attention to any change in the hearts of the people of Israel, but draws attention singularly to the favor and grace of God. God showed favor on his people. He visited his people and he gave them food. But what is, what is Naomi to do? She's living in Moab. And as John mentioned uh, a little earlier, the condition of their moving to Moab was because of the famine that was in the land of Israel. Life was hard. Things were tough. So Elimelech makes the prudent decision, and he decides he's going to move his family to Moab, which was very close. It was a, a neighboring country. He moves his family to Moab along with his wife, Naomi, and his two sons, Malon and Kilion. The account is told in such a way as to draw attention to the dramatic nature of what is, is about to unfold. In the first couple of verses, the narrator wants to zero his attention and focus his attention on Elimelech. In verse 1, we find his wife in verse 1. We find his two sons in verse 1. And then verse 2 repeats it for emphasis. He says, his wife, Naomi, in verse 2. His sons, Malon and Kilion, in verse 2. And now this dramatic shift. This shift of focus away from Elimelech and now to Naomi. In verse 2, Elimelech now is described as Naomi's wife. Or husband, excuse me. In verse 2, she was the one who was left. It was her two sons. <clears throat> and then in verse 3, repeated with emphasis, the woman was left with her two sons and her husband. In verse 5, the woman was left again without her two sons. In verse 5, without her husband. And now, continuing on in verse 6, she arose, her two daughters. All of this is meant to call attention to the suddenness of what has just transpired. In just a matter of two verses, the focus has shifted away from Elimelech and now his focus to Naomi to draw attention to the dramatic nature of the divine work. The work of God in judging, in disciplining this unfaithful man. And now we're just left with Naomi. What will she do? She's faced with a dilemma. There's no source of provision, no, no family to depend on. There's no friends, no shared ancestry with the Moabites. She was out of her element. She was exposed. She was alone. She was in a foreign land, and she was vulnerable as a widow. You see, widows in the ancient culture had little recourse outside of their husband and their sons. She was no better than a beggar. She was no be better than one who was considered poor. Because women in that society had one key work, and that was to care for family and to care for children. 
and with a husband and with children that were removed. Now Naomi is left without a recourse, without help. She's put into a place of now needing to depend on others for her help. Add to this now the responsibility of caring for two others, for Orpah and for Ruth. How will she care for them? What will she do? Can she go back to Israel? But that was not an easy decision. It wasn't just automatic that she would go back to Israel because if you remember, the act of her family in moving away from Israel was essentially an act of betrayal. It was, it was going against the heritage. It was going against your people. It was turning your back on the God of Israel. Turning your back on the good advice that you were given. Turning your back on your community. Ancient Bethlehem was not a place you could hide. This small rural community known for its fertile fields and its shepherding about five miles south of Jerusalem, 2,500 feet in elevation. The thing about small towns is it is not a place that you can be anonymous. And any of you who have grown up or lived in a small town will understand that fact, that reality. And as we'll discover in our sermon next week, our passage next week, that Naomi no sooner steps foot in Bethlehem, but the brush fire of conversation about her return has spread throughout Bethlehem. And anyone who understands small town communities, labels stick. Just about a week ago, I went back to Cedarville. That was the small little rural town that I grew up in. And I recall a man who was walking down the street just a, a week ago. He has lived in Cedarville for the last 50 years. He's about 60, 65 at this point. This man is not known by his first name, John. This man is known by the label that has been attached to him and he's worn over the, his life for the past 50 years because of something that happened to him when he was in high school, something that he had nothing to do with, something that was done to him, not something that he did. And so whenever ever somebody sees John, they think this name. They think this identity. They think about that situation that happened 50 plus years ago that he had no control over. And that's what you can expect in a small little rural town. A small little town of Bethlehem. Labels stick. And so to come back to Bethlehem was to come back to shame. It was to come back to embarrassment. It was to come back to a place where everyone knew that God had brought judgment on your life. So to come back to Bethlehem was not a place, was not, a, was not a, an easy decision for her to make. In order to come back, she would have to embrace the shame that all of her friends in Bethlehem may have given to her. 10 years of this hard life showing up across her life. Is this Naomi, they would say in verse 19? Now a widow, aged through adversity, no longer recognizable. There was a dilemma that she was faced with, but now a decision that she makes. We see that also in verse six. Notice, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. 
Upon receiving this word, this word that God had visited his people, she springs to action. There seems to be this impulse, this reflex in her heart. There seems to be this natural response. News has come, now she goes. This impulse of her heart that now draws her back to Bethlehem. No thought of the shame, at least no indication of a thought of shame coming to her heart. Both the news and the decision are are meant to be seen in the suddenness for which they, they are happening. The narrator gives us her decision before we even find out about the news that she's responding to. She arises with her daughters-in-law. This word, to arise, is in a Hebrew construction that, that draws attention to how this key word, will, this key action of her life now sets the course for the remainder of this chapter. To get up, to stand up. It's a common word for rising from a sitting position. But it's also a common word throughout the Old Testament that draws attention to a response of obedience to God. Those of you who are part of soccer camp and those of you uh, that are in the missions team will understand the story of Jonah. That was the, the story that we taught through the soccer camp week. This word comes front and center from the very start of Jonah where in Jonah 1 verse 1, God says, arise, go to Nineveh, Nineveh, that great city. That's the same word, arise, rise up. Of course, what did Jonah do? (laughs) In Jonah 1 verse 2, but Jonah arose and didn't go to Nineveh, right? He goes to Tarshish. And then while he's on the boat, God sends, actually says he hurls, God hurls a storm on the ocean. This boat is tossed to and fro, The captain comes down to the lower deck, finds that Jonah is sleeping, and uses this same word. Rise up, Jonah. Call out to your God. Perhaps your God will give a thought to us. And Jonah rises up and does what the captain says. And as you know the story, the sailors throw Jonah overboard. He gets swallowed by a great fish and spit out onto dry land. And God repeats the command again in chapter 3, verse 1. Arise, Jonah, and go to Nineveh. This time, Jonah obeys. It says in verse 2 of chapter 3, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. This posture of a heart that is compliant and obedient to the word of God. Naomi's heart was ready. Naomi's heart was tender. Naomi's heart was inclined to obedience. She hears the news and she springs to action. She goes just like God had called her. She responds to good news because her heart was ready in spite of the pain she experienced. She's not one to want to save face. Any of us, <laughs> I was trying to think of a, of, a, of a good example and too many came to my mind. Of the number of times I've made a decision and it was recommended to me by a committee of friends not to do what I thought was really smart. I did it anyway and I thought it was really good until the bottom fell out of that decision and the consequences came And now I'm faced with a dilemma, what should I do? Do I continue to save face, 
Do I continue to work in and suffer in the consequences of that bad decision, or do I humble myself, turn my heart, and surrender to God and obey what he's telling me to do? To Naomi's credit, we don't get the sense that Naomi ever thought twice about this decision. Her heart is ready to obey. She's faced with this decision. She makes it, and now we see in verses 6 and 7, they make their departure. They're ready to go. Verse 6 says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard that in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now verse 7. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Now the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is choosing his words very carefully here. He does not say, then she arose with her daughters-in-law and went to the land of Judah. Rather, he uses this two-stage formula to emphasize the return. In verse 6, they returned from the country of Moab. Verse 7, they returned to the country of Judah. That is by design. Then four more times in the remainder of our passage, we see a tension that's given to returning. This word shuv, this Hebrew word for turning or returning is repeated throughout this passage to draw attention to a change of heart, a change of situation, a change of circumstance. In verse 8, Naomi says, go return. In verse 10, no, we will return. This is their daughters responding to Naomi. Then verse 11, Naomi says, return my daughters, why will you go with me? And then verse 12, return, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. That is all by design. The, re- the word for returning is to bring back, to turn back, to change. And it deals with the, a turn of perspective, a turn of events, a turn of action, but also is often used in the scripture to talk about a turn of heart, a change of heart, repentance. The official word for repentance, the Hebrew word is naham. But here, the word for repentance is often coupled with this word of returning. We see in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 24 and 25, that Solomon, during the dedication of the temple, will use this word to turn, shuv, that we find here in our passage. And he couples it with forgiveness. If your people, Israel, are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you and they turn again and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear from heaven and forgive their sins of your people, Israel, and bring them again to the land that you gave to them and to their fathers. And then in verse 26 and 27, when the heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray towards this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin, when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants. Your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, 
which you have given to your people as an inheritance. When they turn their heart, when they change their actions, when they come to terms with their sin and turn back to you, a posture and a heart that is moving back in the direction of God, then please forgive them. Forgive them. Nehemiah, many, many years from the time of Ruth, when the people of Israel have been sent into exile because of their sin, and a portion of them have come back into the land, Nehemiah will pray in a very similar way to God in Nehemiah chapter 1. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heavens, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name to dwell there. Ruth, time and time again, will help us to understand the significance of returning. Fifteen times in this little book, this word return will be used. And if I want to compare this book to the rest of the Old Testament, which I'll do in this next graphic, the book of Ruth is that red, that red bar compared to the rest of the Old Testament. The number of times that return is used, it's all in proportion with the number of verses in the book. You can see that, that the book of Ruth in the focus on return is significant. One out of every six and a half verses in the book of, of Ruth uses the word return. Return. Return to me. Turn your heart away from your sin and turn your heart to me. And Naomi models an individual who is ready to turn her heart to God. It's symbolic of this repentant heart, humility, acknowledgement of sin, a yielding to God, and a choosing him over choosing your stuff. The same applies to us this morning. God has given us good news. Naomi heard good news in the field, but it was nothing like the news that we have, the news of forgiveness of sin because of what Jesus has done for us. And as we come to terms, every one of us in this room and everyone who is watching on the live stream, as we come to terms with who we are, as John said in reading through Titus chapter 3, 5 and following, we come to recognize that we are vile. We are wicked. We are sinful. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And because of sin, we deserve death. The wages or the penalty of sin is death. Every one of us in this room, because of our sin, deserve not just physical death, but separation from God forever in hell. Spiritual death forever. But because of Jesus, and this is where it becomes very good news, because of what Jesus did for us, he paid the price for sin on the cross by dying in our place, so that those who believe in Jesus can have forgiveness of their sins. It's not that God overlooks sin. It's not that God would say sin doesn't matter because it mattered so much that God the Father put his son on the cross and the wrath of God fell on Jesus as if he were punishing you, as if he were punishing me. So then the righteousness 
of Christ, the righteous life that he lived through those who believe in Jesus and ask forgiveness for their sins. The righteousness of Christ is then applied to the bankruptcy of your account and it's filled up. There's nothing more to add because the righteousness and perfection of Christ can't be eclipsed. It can't be added to. Do you believe in the good news? Have you come to a place like Naomi of posturing, posturing your heart to see that God has given good news, but it requires humility in you. It requires submission in you. It requires you to take a close look at yourself, to come to terms with your sin, and to ask forgiveness from God and turn your heart towards him. Posture yourself to want him in life. Naomi sets the example for us of one who delights in repentance and in turning to God. Her heart was ready. As we move on in our passage, she not only hears good news, but Naomi, in verses eight to 14, considers what is good for her daughters-in-law. She wants what is good for them. Notice in verse eight, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return, each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with me, uh, excuse me, as you have dealt with the dead and with me, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, they lifted up their voices and wept. As the narrative continues, we get a clearer picture of who Naomi is. We get this understanding of what motivates her heart. We get this understanding of, of where, the, where her faith resides. What is her confidence anchored on? And we see through this, this admonition, we see this prayer, this twofold prayer that she prays for her daughters-in-law. Her heart is driven for love for God and love for her daughters-in-law. She wants what's best for them. So she prays God's blessing over their life. We notice here this loyalty. These daughters-in-law who have, who have followed her to, to some point in Moab, maybe even making their way into Israel. This investment that has happened between Naomi and her daughters-in-law. In this day and age, families were, were communal. Men would go and they would work in the fields or they would tend the flocks or they would do their business in the gates and the women would stay home and tend the house and manage the family. And as the women would care for the home, this relentless task of preparing food and gathering water, gathering wood and mending clothes and caring for kids, all of these things were happening together so that by virtue of the, of the days that went by, the, the waking hours of the day, the time was spent most with one another, not with their husbands. It's safe to say then that Naomi has a huge influence in the lives of Ruth and Orpah. And so what we're about to notice in the remaining part of this passage where Ruth now embraces the God of Israel, that didn't happen by accident. Yes, it was a work of God in her heart, but I want you to recognize that it was the faith of Naomi that carried it through. She was the catalyst for great faith in her daughter-in-law, Ruth. But at some point along the way, she realizes that life in Israel is not gonna be easy, so she prays for them. 
She's a widow. She knows that she can't provide for her family the way that she wants to provide. So she, she sends them home. And in her request, we find this prayer of blessing that contains some important things about what Naomi believes regarding God. She says, may the Lord, this is the word Yahweh, Yahweh who is the promise keeper, Yahweh who is the covenant maker, he is the one who is dependable, he is the one who has drawn Israel into relationship, this is the one to whom Naomi prays. She asks the Lord for something specific here in verse eight, may the Lord deal kindly with you. This is the word deal kindly, is the word chesed. It's the word for loyal love or steadfast love, unfailing love of God for the covenant community. Naomi assumes and believes that it is the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant keeper, who not only reigns in Judah, but also reigns in Moab. So she prays that God's kindness would go before her daughters-in-law as they go back to Moab because she knows that God is transcendent. God is everywhere. And she also recognizes that, that it is Yahweh alone who is the one who gives goodness and kindness. She prays that Yahweh, the Lord, would send his kindness on these two. In a way, this is an unusual request. These words to Ruth and Orpah are unusual because they weren't part of the covenant community. They were outsiders. They were Moabites. They weren't Jews. But Naomi understood the promises of God could, be, could extend beyond the boundaries. That was God's heart when he says to Abraham, in you all the nations will be blessed. And God also saying, I will bless those who bless you. Hmm. Naomi has felt particularly blessed by Ruth and Orpah. She is praying that God's hand of blessing would also go before them. But also in, in verse nine, there's a second blessing that she prays. It says, the Lord grant that you may find rest. This is the word that, that is used for security. It's the word to be spared from the restlessness and wandering. It's often used in the Old Testament to, to allocate the security and peace that comes within a marital relationship. As women understand the, the significance of provision that happens in that home. Naomi, again, when the current of her tenderest feelings was running full and strong, lifts up her longing heart towards the Lord and asks that the Lord would apply his tender, kind love to these two. Her initial request is met with resistance as we're gonna find in the remaining verses 10 to 14. And so her praying now moves to pleading. She pleads with them, verse 10. They said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back my daughters, go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. 
In these verses, we find the interchange between uh, Naomi and Orpah and Ruth. We find in verse 8, Naomi bids them go. In verse 10, they respond, no, we're going to stay. In verse 11 and 12, Naomi bids them go again. And finally, in verse 14, Orpah relents and listens and heeds the voice of her mother-in-law. Naomi describes the real prospects of what wait for them in Israel. No husband, no kids, no legacy, no security, very little hope. What this also meant was poverty, neglect, isolation, no security, a life of scraping by. This was the voice of reason. This is the voice of love of Naomi to her daughters-in-law. And then to top it off, we find in verse 13, it is exceedingly bitter, she says, to me for your sakes, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi sees this as from the hand of the Lord. She describes her bitter experience. Bitterness, which is, uh, which means anguish. It means difficulty. It means suffering. And allowing this bitterness to fester would mean that she would turn into a person who was walking away from God and wanted nothing to do with God. But in describing the honesty of the anguish that she felt and how now the, the, the collateral damage of the sin of her family then affected her daughters-in-law, she acknowledges that God's hand has been heavy on me. But this is not a person who is bitter. Those of you who understand bitterness, those of you who've seen uh, individuals in your life and in your circles who are bitter, they want nothing to do with God. But Naomi is pushing in. She's not walking away. She's learning to be honest about her situation and giving it to God and trusting him with it and pushing in and trusting more, not walking away. Naomi is coming to terms with God's hand. She's learning to respond in a way that's submissive in a way that is yielding to the disciplining hand of God. But Naomi isn't the only one who's experienced bitter things, right? Her daughters-in-law have experienced bitter things too, and she wants better things for them. In this moment, we're going to find that Orpah will move away. She will go back to her family, back to her nation, back to her own interests. But the loyalty that Naomi has developed, Orpah would have wanted to remain, but she decides to heed the voice of her mother-in-law. Naomi's faithful investment is in, is in display. The way that she has worked to demonstrate a faith in God has brought them to this point. These good seeds this gospel life, this faith-filled heart in trusting God, and this Godward turn that we see in Naomi's life has had its impact in both Orpah and Ruth. But now as we turn to verses 15 and 18, we're gonna see that Naomi receives a good gift from, the, from God. A good gift from God as it relates to a daughter-in-law, Ruth, whose heart has changed whose heart is steadfast, whose heart is pressing in as well. Notice, and she said, this is Naomi speaking, see, your sister-in-law has gone. This is the word for return. She's returned back to her people and to her gods. She's returned, or return after your sister-in-law. 
But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Now the narrator puts this right front and center for us. As Naomi is speaking, notice how she phrases this return, this return to her gods, this return to her people. This is the word shuv, again. The future was more certain in, in Moab, certainly. It was more comfortable, it was more predictable. And Orpah will go, she'll return. But Ruth stands her ground. The point of decision has become clear, and Ruth now responds to Naomi in a way that is unexpected. Orpah returns to her people and to her gods, and Ruth will also return to her people and to her gods, but not the ones you expect. She returns to the God of Israel. She returns to the people of Israel. She has replaced her loyalty. She has changed her heart. She's following after the example of Naomi in returning back to God. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I have made a, um, a decision of repentance too. I have chosen to submit. I have chosen to yield. I have chosen to turn my heart to God. Loyalty to God, the God of Israel. And loyalty to Naomi as mother-in-law. This was a good gift from God to Naomi. And if Naomi would have, would have continued to understand, and, and she's gonna see this begin to materialize as the book of Ruth continues. This is a, another window into the goodness and kindness of God, that her fortune, in some respects, has changed because God is changing them. Repentance has led to change for her and for her daughter-in-law. And now God is going to step in and God is gonna demonstrate his ability to change her circumstances. God uses Naomi's faith as a catalyst for change in Ruth. I wanna close with this. This is one commentator says, faith in the Lord, especially in the face of bitter trials, is frequently used by the Lord to produce faith in others. Often when a believer is least aware of it, the Lord may be using his or her faith to promote faith in the others. As a watching world observes a submissive faith in the Lord, it is prompted to ask believers to give a reason for the hope that they have. It is a mistake to think that we need to make the Lord more attractive to others by giving the impression that the life of faith is easy, because it's not. Faith in the Lord shines its brightest in the reality of bitter circumstances. The suffering believer who clings to the Lord in times of trial is more likely to promote faith in others than those who appear to have a successful and easy life, end quote. End quote. How are you demonstrating? Through a commitment to God when things are hard, that God is dependable, that God is good, that God can be trusted. <laughs> Naomi's faith shone through in the hardest moments because she 
anchored her heart in a dependable, trustworthy, steadfast, loyal God. May God help us to do the same. Lord, we thank you for the example that we read this morning and we see the beginnings, Lord, of, of your work, not only in Naomi's life, but in Ruth's life. And we see this change of events, mainly a change of heart, posturing that's come because of a readiness to submit to you, a repentant heart that admits where it was and recognizes that whatever trials may come in the future, it's better to be where you are. God, may that be our expression too. Help us, Lord, to anchor our hearts in the steadfastness and dependability of God. And may that shine as a light to the world around us. We pray in your name, amen. God bless you. Have a good day.